message. That's your anointing beyond the word that Dr. Ra is bringing us tonight. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're not that close. Uh, uh, I, I had forgotten that I was supposed to be here for that King uh, celebration. And then, uh, yeah, I think uh, there was a scheduling conflict uh, with, my, with my children uh, that I wasn't able to make it uh, that time. But uh, this is actually not my first time at Eastern Nazarene College. Um, I spoke here at chapel, must have been about 10 years ago. So it was quite a while ago, but I was here for a chapel uh, a long time ago. Uh, but a big part of that was that um, I was a pastor in this area for many years. Uh, in fact, it was only about four years ago that we moved out to Chicago for me to take this faculty position at North Park Seminary. Uh, but I was a pastor of a church in Cambridge, and that church is still there, and it meets at a, uh, the Nazarene Church in Central Square. So uh, I was very familiar, and I actually um, had spent some time at the Nazarene Church as a member of the staff. Uh, John and Peg Bowen uh, were dear friends, uh, are dear friends of mine, and uh, I actually had lived in their home, and I actually lived in the basement of the uh, Church of the Nazarene in, in Central Square. So uh, there are a lot of connections here to, uh, with ENC. Uh, Nick Rowe, a former faculty member here, is a dear friend of mine. And so this has been a wonderful place. I remember Robert Benjamin meeting you from, uh, from several years back as well. So this has been a wonderful place of connection for me as uh, someone who's not Nazarene but has been involved with Nazarene churches and know many folks who are uh, in the Nazarene denomination, and especially uh, my connection here with Boston. It's good to be back. I haven't been back in a couple of years, uh, and the opportunity to be back here with some, uh, with some great places of ministry here in the Boston area. And I'm really excited about our time together, uh, our evening times as well as our morning times. Um, I want to I talk about maybe ch- uh, charting an idea of where we want to go when we talk about uh, uh, what's happening with our, with our, with our time together. Uh, I have this theory. I, I teach in the area of evangelism and church growth. And one of the things I, I teach and talk about in my courses is about discipleship. Because one of the things that we do poorly in evangelicalism is that we have separated out evangelism and discipleship. And we say, well, let's get them in the door of the church through evangelism. And then we uh, fail to talk about the process of discipleship and nurturing disciples of Jesus when actually the Great Commission puts the two together very directly, that evangelism and discipleship actually need to go hand in hand. So one of the things we need to think about when we talk about gatherings like this is not just a revival that leads to evangelism, but a revival that leads to a a depth in discipleship. How are we made and formed as disciples of Jesus as a result of our time together? And so the question then is, how do we as Christians, how do we grow? And I have a theory. The theory is, is that you need two things in order for people to grow. The first is you need a safe place. You need a place where you feel secure and affirmed so that you're not afraid. And because fear is not necessarily a good motivation for growth. So you need a safe place in order to grow. But if you just have a safe place, if you just have a comfortable place, that's actually insufficient for growth as well. You need challenges. You need places where there's a little bit of discomfort. Because without discomfort, you also don't want to change. So if you have a place that's just a safe place, then you feel like, okay, I'm comfortable, I'm satisfied where I am, I don't need to grow at all. That's not growth. But then if you have just a place where you're challenged all the time, you're angsty, you're kind of always on edge, that's not a place for growth either. So you need both of those kinds of uh, 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 those realms. And so during our time together, I would like to propose that there are places where we're going to be drawn into the presence of God as a safe place, that God is calling all of us to draw closer to Him, and finding the grace and the mercy and the love of God in just beautiful, deep, and rich ways. That we as individuals are allowed to come into the presence of God and experience that grace and experience that safe place. But there will also be moments where we'll be jolted out of our safety, jolted out of our comfort and apathy. So I want us to keep that in mind, that we're going to go back and forth here a little bit. There are places where we're going to encounter the grace and safety of being in God's presence, And there are also going to be words that are spoken that might jolt us out of our complacency. 
So we're going to look today at the book of Haggai. And I would like to, if you have your Bibles, please turn to that and keep it open. And if you can find it, that's great, because most people don't know where the book of Haggai is. Uh, it's about three quarters of the way through your Bible. Um, it's one of the last books of the Old Testament. It comes right before Zechariah and Malachi. Malachi is the last book. And right, before, uh, right after Zephaniah. So if you see a lot of Z's in your Bible... Haggai is right in the middle of uh, Zephaniah and Zechariah. And I want us to keep our Bibles open and look at uh, uh, Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 and following. And I want us to examine the story of what happens to the people of Israel in the book of Haggai. And what I like to do is, again, in order to kind of create this atmosphere of safety, of grace, of encountering the love of God, what I like to do is, as we go through the book of Haggai in chapter 2, I'd like to share my story and uh, my, my journey as a Christian, uh, and how I became a Christian, and how the grace of God has really been at work in my life. So let's look at Haggai chapter 2. Let's start with verses 1 and 3. If you have your Bible, you can turn it to it and, and keep it open there. I'm going to refer to it, reference back and forth in the Haggai chapter 2. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and ask them, Who of you is left? who saw this house in its former glory. And how does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Uh, anytime we study scripture, we want to understand the context in which the scriptures were written. If we read it in a vacuum, uh, we're going to miss out on a lot of what the scripture has to say to us. So we need to understand that the book of Haggai was not written in a vacuum. It was written in a particular historical context, in a particular time period. And that what God is saying to the people of Israel during uh, the, the uh, prophet Haggai's time is applicable to us, but we need to understand the context into which this book was written. One of the things that you recognize here is that Israel uh, is, is being challenged because they're saying that this house, they had just rebuilt the temple. Do you remember the former glory of this temple? And it's a reference to remember the former glory of Israel. That at one point, Israel had been this incredible nation. Uh, it had been this superpower. In fact, Israel, as under King David and King Solomon, was the superpower of its time. David was a great military leader and he went out and he conquered all the nations around him and he was able to establish peace because he was this great military power, military leader. His son Solomon inherited this great, successful, powerful kingdom and Solomon was able to take the nation to another step of economic prosperity so that under David you had this military uh, victory and then under Solomon you had this great economic prosperity and Solomon as a wise leader was able to lead Israel into this golden age. And if you were to remember, uh, if, if Israel were to remember a moment in their history where they were at the height of themselves as a nation, it would be under the king, kingship of King David and King Solomon. Now the symbol of their prosperity, the symbol of their success, was the Temple of Solomon. The Temple of Solomon was the most magnificent and beautiful building you could ever imagine. It was an architectural marvel. In fact, we know the story that folks from all over the ancient Near East would come to marvel at this amazing temple that Solomon had built, the place of worship for the nation of Israel. It was made with gold and silver and precious metals and precious stones everywhere. This is kind of a stripped-down building in one sense, but imagine this room filled, and instead of blue, it's gold everywhere. Instead of just uh, uh, the, those drapes, those are drapes everywhere, the rich, fine, ornate drapery everywhere. And I'm dressed not in a, in a, in a plaid uh, jacket, but in, in gold and precious metals all over my, my articles of clothing. It was an incredible, incredible building. And again, those from all over the ancient Near East would marvel at this amazing building made out of the finest of wood, the best that Israel had, gold, silver, precious metals, and precious stones. And we know, of course, the story of the Queen of Sheba who came from far away to admire this amazing building. Well, that's kind of the height of the story of Israel, of Israel at its greatest moment of military and economic prosperity. Uh, we might call those the Clinton years of Israel. Uh, when the economy was doing well, the market was well, and everybody's house, uh, uh, <laughs> they could sell it for a lot more than we can sell it right now. So those were the glory years of Israel. Um, but what, what interesting thing happens is that Israel follows the path of rebellion and disobedience. And instead of these glory years continuing on and on, and the bubble burst in some sense, uh, because of their rebellion, because of their disobedience, and that leads to the judgment of God, which is the exile of Israel from their homeland. 
Now you've got to remember how important that homeland was to the nation of Israel. It was the, in fact, it was their expression of love from God and, and letting them know that they were a special people. That they were given this promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And so when that land is taken away and the nation of Israel is sent away into exile, first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians, and they lose their homeland, that's, that was a tragic, tragic loss to the nation of Israel. It wasn't just the loss of their land or their nation or their status as a nation. They lost their very basic identity of who they were. Their identity was so tied into that land. When that land was taken away, they did not know who they were. They were exiles in a foreign land. These invaders that came and took over and conquered Israel, they were the most brutal invaders imaginable. One of the things that they would do is they would come in and they would burn all the fields. And after they burned all the fields, they would salt the fields so that nothing could ever grow on those lands again. So the land that had once been flowing with milk and honey had now become this barren land. But God in His infinite grace and mercy and wisdom decided to forgive the nation of Israel. And they were called back into the promised land. And after uh, a generation had been sent into exile, they came back, uh, several generations, they came back but as a defeated and impoverished people. And now instead of having their own nation like they had under David and Solomon, instead of being a great military superpower, instead of being an economic success story, they were now the poorest of the poor in that region. They were impoverished. They had lost their identity. They had lost their hope. And at the end of the day, they came out and said, we have this huge tax bill to pay to the powers that still control us. We have no farmland because it's been destroyed by previous generations that came and wiped us out. We have no resources in which to rebuild our nation. And in fact, when the marauders and conquerors first came, the first thing they took was the gold, silver, the precious metals and the precious stones from the temple. So even as they were trying to rebuild the temple, they realized that they had no resources with to even to rebuild that temple. Now God called them, and we know the story of Ezra and of Nehemiah, to call them to rebuild that temple, and they did. And they tried their best. But you've got to remember, they came, took everything that was precious, tore the building down, and all they could do was kind of rearrange the rubble, take some of the fallen bricks and put it back into the right place. And there was, of course, no gold, no silver, no precious metals or precious stones to speak of. They just kind of threw the building together. And that's when we encounter the story in Haggai chapter 2. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet Haggai, and he asked the leaders of Israel at that time, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Do you remember how it once used to look under King Solomon? Gold, silver, precious metal, precious stones... And then the question comes, how does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? The people of God at this particular point in the story of Israel could not be at a lower place. They are at the lowest place in their self-image, in their self-perception, in all that they had. Everything had been taken away. And that was the reality that they were dealing with in Haggai chapter 2. Their lives felt like nothing. They felt like they had nothing left. And they felt like the, as a nation they had been torn apart. And as a people, they had lost their very basic identity. Let me try to believe my personal story into what happened to the nation of Israel here. You see Israel kind of fallen into this place and have lost all of these things. Their identity, their wealth, their, uh, their strength. All of these things have been taken away. And, and, and my story is, is very similar to that. I'm the youngest of four children. I'm actually the only son. Uh, I had two older brothers who passed away. One died at childbirth. The other died uh, of, leuke of uh, leukemia several years after. Uh, and so I was, if you know anything about Asian families, you know that sons have a very, are, are of a premium. And uh, to be the only son or the only surviving son, and on top of that, my older sisters are much older than I am because the two brothers that were in between my sisters and, my, and myself uh, had passed away. So uh, my parents were very doting on me. As you can imagine, the only surviving son, the bearer of the, of the family name, all of those things that come with being the only son in an Asian family. So one of the things they decided to do is they made me the center of attention. And again, my sisters being much older than me, they also kind of made me the center of attention in this household. Uh, and apparently, I was a very cute child. It's hard to say now, but uh, I was a very cute four or five-year-old. Uh, you can see it in my six-year-old son. He's kind of a, he looks like me when I, was, uh, when I was six years old. So apparently I was a cute child. And one of the things they decided to do is they, they decided to really put me forth as a child prodigy. So at the age of five, they put me into the second grade. 
So I'm in second grade, everybody's like four years, three, four years older than me, but there I am in the second grade at the age of four and five. I was four years old when I started second grade, and then five year, uh, I was a five-year-old when I was in, uh, by the time second grade wrapped up. Uh, but then they decided that they wanted to put me into um, uh, modeling. Uh, again, I was a cute baby, not, not anymore, I can pull this off now, but when I was about four or five years old, they entered me into this modeling contest. And uh, I, I won first place in the Seoul region, and then I finished in second place in the entire nation. I, I blew the swimsuit competition, apparently. Uh, so I had won this contest, and they uh, started giving me little modeling gigs. And I started appearing in soap operas, and in local movie, uh, in, uh, in movie, uh, Korean movies, and in advertisements. And uh, you see, I, I, my mom still has kind of the posters and the and the postcards and the and the newspaper ads that I appeared in. So there's a whole book of my. Uh, of my accomplishments when I was an actor in, uh, in Korea. Um, in fact, when I was a campus minister right here at MIT, I was an Ivy staff worker for many years, one of my students went to Korea for the summer, came back and said, you will not believe this, I found this postcard and this kid looks just like you. And it was me, it was a picture of me from 20 years ago and they still sell those postcards in Korea. Uh, so it was an interesting life. It was kind of the height. It was the, my David and Solomonic years, I guess you can say, because it was kind of the height of success to, to be a model and uh, to, uh, to be a, a second grader at the age of five. Uh, but when my family moved to the United States, a lot of that started disappearing. Actually, all of that pretty much disappeared. Uh, I wasn't allowed to go into second grade at the age of five because I couldn't speak the language. So they put me back into my regular grade, which was uh, in first grade. And so I felt like this, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be going into third grade. I had finished second grade in Korea. Why am I being forced to go back into first grade? Uh, and then on top of that, this was uh, in the mid-70s when we first immigrated to the United States. Um, there was not a huge demand for cute Asian kids on American television. You know, it just, just was not a big deal. So I didn't get a whole lot of modeling and television gigs when we moved to the United States. I did some local Korean radio, and that's just like, you know, that's like the bottom of the barrel there for me in terms of uh, my career as, a, as, a, as an actor. So all of that kind of was, had disappeared on me. Uh, but I think the thing that was maybe the most difficult, traumatic for our family, was not so much the loss of a modeling career or, or being bumped down to the first grade, uh, was that my dad left my family when I was about nine or ten years old. Now, there had been undercurrents of conflict that had not necessarily been a happy home, but, certain, but the shock of my father actually physically leaving our family was just this very abrupt and, and, and kind of... Uh, it, it obviously ripped the family apart. So my mom, who... Uh, uh, doesn't speak much English. Uh, she, here she is with parents of, uh, of a single mom of four kids in a different country, uh, just trying to make it through the, through the day. She started, uh, she took on two jobs. Uh, she would work in uh, inner city Baltimore uh, and working in a carryout. Um, and at night she would go to a nursing home and work as a nurse's aide in the night shift. So she would work a 10 hour shift uh, at the uh, inner city carryout and then another 10 hour shift at the nursing home. She would come home and fix me breakfast and then sleep for a couple of hours and then go back to work at the inner city carryout. She would do this six days a week, uh, working 20 hours a day. Uh, but she always set the example for us by always not working on Sunday. Uh, despite all those hours, she said, I, I'm not going to work on Sunday. I'm going to honor the Lord in what I do by taking the Sabbath on Sunday. And that's one of the examples that she, uh, she set for us. Um, and so because obviously it was a single family, uh, we didn't have a whole lot of money in our house. My dad was out and we, he was not sending child support. So my, uh, my mom had to move us to, uh, from a kind of a middle class neighborhood in the D.C. suburbs into, into inner city Baltimore. So uh, we moved to this neighborhood um, and it was a third poor blacks, a third poor whites, and a third recent Korean immigrants. And so none of the people liked each other. It was always kind of a lot of gang violence, especially in the high, among the high school students. I was an elementary school kid, but um, um, yeah, I, I still remember vividly uh, growing up in that neighborhood. In fact, over this past winter break, a friend of mine is doing a documentary on immigrants and he wanted to kind of document my story of growing up uh, as an immigrant in, in America, we drove back to my old neighborhood and with a camera and kind of took footage of the neighborhood and a couple of the neighborhood kids came out and started talking to us and said, hey, what are you doing? I said, well, we're making a documentary about someone who used to live here. I said, oh, was he a rap star or is he a rapper or something? No, no, this is the guy that used to live here. Yeah, I'm not a rap star. Uh, and then, uh, so uh, the neighborhood that we grew up in was, it was a rough neighborhood. I remember uh, being very afraid to... Um, run from our, our local library to get home because we had to cut through a, uh, a cemetery. 
And I learned to run really fast because that's where all the beatdowns occurred in the cemetery. If you didn't go through the cemetery, you had to walk all the way around and it took a lot longer. Uh, so that, that was kind of the context of the neighborhood that we, uh, we grew up in. Um, but what I remember is um, just being very alone and lonely. Uh, back then, I was a skinny little kid, uh, a Korean kid living in a rough neighborhood, uh, always afraid. Uh, my mom was working 20 hours a day, six days a week. Uh, my sisters, who were much older than me, they were in high school uh, and, and one was in college. Um, they also needed to bring money into the house. And, uh, they would go to school and then they would work in the afternoon. So I was home alone a lot. Uh, and, and just being in the neighborhood that was rough, not being able to go out and just being home alone. I remember being afraid almost all of the time. And I actually began to develop a real strong fear of silence. Um, I've, I've, I've overcome that over the years, but it took a lot of kind of God's spiritual presence. So for the longest time, I had trouble with quiet time uh, because I didn't like quiet time because I spent most of my childhood being alone and the house being silent. We didn't have a TV. We didn't have radio. It was just silent. And all you could hear are roaches scurrying around. It's just not a good feeling to be alone and to be silent. And so when, you know, the pastors would say, be silent before the Lord, you have to have your quiet time. I said, no, that, that brings back some bad memories for me. The last thing I want to be is silent before the Lord. Uh, so there I was, living in, uh, in this rough neighborhood, um, very poor self-image, uh, really lacking self-confidence. Uh, I wasn't strong enough to be in a gang. I wasn't fast enough to outrun everybody. I was, I was you know, I was just had this real poor self-image uh, and wondering what God was going to do with my life and actually having essentially rejected God. Uh, and I, I tied that in a lot with the rejection that I felt by my earthly father. I began to tie in with the rejection that I had felt uh, what was happening with my Heavenly Father. Uh, and so there I was in this particular context. Now, I tell you this not to draw a response of sympathy. I tell you this because I want you to know the amazing grace of our Savior, that He finds us no matter where we are. Whether you are in the highest of heights or the lowest of lows, the psalmist says it beautifully. He says, no matter where I go, you are there. In fact, the little translation of that is, wherever I go, you, you. I go to the heights of the heaven, and you. I go to the depths of the sea, and you. And that's my story. Even in the place where I felt the lowest of the low, and I can say, this is awful. This is the worst place that a nine-year-old or a ten-year-old could be. This is the absolute bottom of the barrel when it comes to what my life is supposed to be and the where, where I've ended up. But God is still there. No matter where we're coming from. And some of you may come from wonderful stories of growing up in a Christian home. Those are wonderful stories. Isn't it great that God finds us in those scenarios as well? But isn't it great also that God finds us when we're the lowest of the low? when we're at the place that it feels like, where is God in the middle of this? Where is God in this community? Where is God in the violence? Where is God in the abandonment? Where is God in the loneliness, in the silence? Where is God? You. I go to the heights of the heavens. I go to the depths of the sea. And there you are. There God is. In the midst of our despair, in the midst of our pain, God still shows up over and over and over again. That's what happens in the book of Haggai. Here are the people of Israel in the in absolute the, the pits. They're, they're at the bottom of the barrel. They're about as low as they can get. And God shows up. And God shows up and He says three words to them. Be strong, be strong, be strong. Three times He says, be strong, be strong, be strong. He just repeats that phrase. He's reminding them, the people of Israel, that I have given you my strength. And in fact, what happens in the, in the uh, Old Testament and other portions of Scripture is that God will give an imperative. So be strong is an imperative. It's a statement, it's a command to be strong. But what's amazing about what happens with the imperative is that it is always followed up by the indicative. Meaning he would tell you to be strong, but then he would tell you how and why you can be strong. God doesn't just tell you to be good, be holy, be righteous, be strong. He always says, be strong. This is my command for you. This is, my, this is my demand for your life. But then he tells you, these are the ways you can live into that strength. So in Haggai chapter 2 verse 4, it says, Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, Jehozadak. 
Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and continue the work. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong, be strong. And he gives three reasons why, following in verses 5 and following, three reasons why the people of God can be strong. The command, the imperative, and then the indicative of why they can be strong. Let's start with verse, uh, verse 5. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 6 and 7. This is what the Lord... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong passage here. Verse 5. Haggai chapter 2, verse 5. This is in, in chronological order here. Chapter 2, verse 5. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. So do not fear. Do not fear. So the first, be strong, the commandment imperative, is followed up with the indicative in verse 5, this is what I covenanted with you. Now notice here that God is referencing back to the fact that he has a special relationship with the nation of Israel. And that special relationship is a covenant. A covenant is a relationship between two parties. And what would happen in the ancient Near East is that the party of the first part was usually the greater party, the lord or the, or the king, and then the party of the second part was the peon or the, or, the, or, the, or the peasant. And then the party of the first part, the king, would make all these demands on the party of the lesser part. And what that covenant was is what we would call a covenant of works. As in the peasant has to work and live up to the gift that the Lord is going to give to the peasant. So that became kind of the common relationship between the kings and the peasants, or the gods of the ancient Near East and their followers. The gods would demand work in order to live into that, uh, the, the worth of, the, of that god. So the Israelites assumed that that was the relationship that they had with God, a covenant of works. And in fact, you can maybe see traces of that when you look at the Old Testament. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Those seem like works, don't they? It seems like if you do these things, then God, Yahweh, will love you and care for you. But actually what happens in this particular passage is a reminder that God says, I don't have a covenant of works with you. I have a covenant of grace with you. Why? Because Israel failed to live up to the work of the Old Testament. Now you see this, right? They, they didn't live up to Leviticus. They didn't live up to the Ten Commandments. That's why God had to exile them. But when God brings them back, it's not because of anything they did right. It was because God loved them and out of His grace. So that's why He says, this is what I have covenanted with you. Not a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace. Look at this. You have messed up over and over again. You have rebelled, you have disobeyed, I have to send away into, send you away into exile. But look, my spirit, it says in verse 5, my spirit still remains among you. Now if this were a covenant of works, I'm long gone. With all the garbage and mistakes and sins you've committed and disobedience, I am long gone. But because we have a covenant of grace, even though you've messed up, even though you've sinned, I am still in the midst of you. It's a covenant of grace not a covenant of works. And that's why he says you can be strong because that's the relationship we have with one another. When my dad first left my family, we didn't hear from him for several years. In fact, it was kind of scary because we had no idea where he was. Uh, we had heard stories that he was in the area still, but you know, very, we had lost contact with him. And in fact, it was, I must have been about 10 or 11, it was a couple of years after my dad had left our family, that I got an unexpected phone call. Again, I hadn't, I hadn't heard from him in two years, and he, he calls us out of the blue. Uh, we're, we're living in Baltimore at the time. He calls. I'm home alone. And he calls. And I was shocked that my dad had called me. And he starts asking me all these questions. And they were really kind of uh, interesting questions. He was asking me if I was getting straight A's in school, how I was doing in school. Then he starts asking me about, uh, what do you know about Baroque music? What do you know about Renaissance art? Who's your favorite classical artist? Who's your favorite Renaissance artist? And I didn't know. I was about 11 years old. I think I said Picasso was my favorite Renaissance artist. I mean, I'm 11 years old. And he kind of drills me for, the, for about 10, 15, 20 minutes. He goes on and on, kind of saying, these are the things you need to do. You need to get straight A's in schools. You need to know about this. You need to do this. You need to do this. You need to get into the right schools. And he goes on and on and on and on. And for the 15, 20 minutes, it was this grilling session. And at the end of that phone call, I hung up the phone, I went into my room and I cried and I cried and I cried. Because my earthly father had just told me that if I, if he, if I wanted his love, I was going to have to earn it. 
If I wanted my earthly father to love me, I was going to have to work. I was going to have to accomplish. I was going to have to do all the things to earn my earthly father's love. I needed to get straight A's. I needed to make sure that I was in all the right clubs. I needed to make sure I got into the right college. I needed to make sure that I succeeded. And then I was in my 11-year-old mind. And then I would be worthy of my earthly father's love. Now when you're 11, you don't really think through these things. But at the same time, you end up internalizing these things. And that became the message in my mind. Not just for that moment when I was 11 years old, but I began to internalize that in my mind for, the, for throughout high school. And so I did get straight A's. So I did go out and join the clubs and I did get into an Ivy League school and I did all the things that I thought would earn my, heaven, uh, my earthly father's love because I had a covenant of works with my earthly father. But here's the interesting thing that I didn't recognize early, on, early enough was that this covenant of works that I had made with my earthly father, the desire to earn my father's love, became also the covenant of works that I started having with my heavenly father. And I started to think, now that I'm a Christian, when I became a Christian, now that I'm a Christian, what I need to do is I need to earn my Heavenly Father's love in the same way that I have to strive and work to earn my earthly Father's love. And in the process of earning my Heavenly Father's love, I did all the right things that a good Christian is supposed to do. I joined the youth group and became the president of the youth group. I joined the uh, InterVarsity group and became the president of the InterVarsity group. And then, of course, after that, what's next? To be a good, good professional Christian, I went to seminary. Of course, because it's part of the trajectory for me to earn my Heavenly Father's love. I had to work for it. I had a covenant of works with my Heavenly Father. But what happens is that the more you try to earn God's love, the more you realize how inadequate you are. In fact, when I got to seminary, I did the same things, the same patterns over again. I got the good grades, I did well in school, and I did all the things that I thought would earn my Heavenly Father's love. But at about my last year in seminary, I realized I was not anywhere close to earning my Heavenly Father's love. In fact, what I started to do is I started to compile a mental list. It was a mental list that said, these are the ways that I have failed my God. These are the ways that I have let my Heavenly Father down. And tied into that was these are the ways that I didn't get to earn my earthly father's love. So I went down the list. I didn't do this right. I didn't do this right. And I started to get this mental list of all the ways that I had failed God and had failed to live up to his expectations for me. So at the end of that process, this is my coming to my last year in seminary right here in Gordon-Conwell up on the North Shore. At the end of that process, I actually made a decision. I am not going to go into pastoral ministry. I am not going to be a servant of the Lord. Why? Why would God want me? Look at this list of all the ways that I have failed Him. Look at all the ways that I don't live up to what He expects of me. I can't be a pastor. I can't be a servant of the Lord because I am an utter failure when it comes to the demands that God has placed upon me as His servant. So I made it, I resolved in my mind. I told my friends, I'm not going into pastoral ministry. I'm not going into, the, uh, into full-time ministry. I'm going to run away from all of that. I'm just, I'm just done with it. So a, a group of friends said, hey, you know, um, we're, we're going to go on this trip. And they took me on this trip to this uh, revival meetings that were going on uh, in, uh, in Canada. So we go to this revival meeting, and I had already resolved at this time, you know what, I'm not going to be a pastor. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And we're at this revival meeting. It's at, a, it's at, a, uh, uh, at that time, it was it's not a large church, but it was a small church. At that time, there were about 200 people in this room, and they go around starting praying for people. And I didn't want to be prayed for. You know, it's just one of those things. Look, I'm, I'm already a place where I've decided I'm going to kind of walk away from this thing. I'm not going to go into ministry. The last thing I need is people to come pray for me and all this junk is going to come out. I'm going to cry. It's just not going to be, just not going to be pretty. Last, that's the last thing I need right now. So there I was in this gathering uh, trying, to, trying to make myself inaccessible to people to be prayed for. But people are going around and praying. And so one of the things that I did is I kind of hid. And the way I hid was I kind of knelt on the, on the ground and I covered my hand with my, uh, with my hands, having my head with my hands, so, so that nobody could see me. I didn't want people coming around. But lo and behold, you know, everybody's being prayed for except for that Asian guy in the corner. Let's go over there. So the group of people come around and say, oh man, this is the last thing I want. I'm not, I don't want to cry. I know I'm going to break down and cry. And in fact, I started praying as I had my head in my hands and I started praying, God, why would you ever want me to be your servant? Why would this even be something you would want? 
And then I started doing that again. Started going down the list. You know the list. You have it too, right? All the ways that you must have disappointed God. All the ways that you must have let God down. And I put my head in my hands and I said, God, look at this list. Look at all the ways that I've let you down and I've disappointed you. And as the people gathered to pray around me, I heard the voice of the Lord. As I was saying, God, look at this list. Look at this list of failures. Look at all the ways that I've let you down. The voice of the Lord said, what list are you talking about? What list are you talking about? I never had a list for you. I never kept a record of wrong. My scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, I've removed your transgressions away from you. What list are you talking about? You've kept the list. You've kept a record of your wrong. But there is no list that God has kept holding over you. And so I sat there wanting to cry, but when I put my hands down, instead of crying, I began to laugh. And I began to laugh like a madman. I was laughing because instead of the judgment of God, I was experiencing the grace of God. That's what it means to have a covenant of grace with God. That even though you mess up over and over and over and over again, even though you sin and live in disobedience, at the end of the day when you go to the Lord, He doesn't say, hey, I kept the record of your wrongs. Now go and uh, do a penance so that you can come back and we can start wiping away this list. He says, what list are you talking about? My spirit still remains in you because I have a covenant with you, not of works, but of grace. Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 7 reads like this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. What good news. This is the second reason that Haggai gives that you can be strong. He says you can be strong in the Lord because the creation power that put the stars in their place, that put all the world in its place, is the same power that I make available to you. Now think about that with me for a moment. That God says, first of all, you can be strong because I have a covenant of grace with you. Then he says, you can be strong because the power of God is in you. The power of God, the same power that put the stars in the place, that raised up the mountains, that causes the rivers to roar, that same creative power is at work in you. It says, the Lord Almighty says, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, silver, gold, all of it is mine. All of creation I put into place. And the same power that God used to create the world is the same power that is at work in you. How many of us recognize how much God loves us to the point that He would make that power available to you? As, as I said earlier, uh, we, uh, I, we, we were here as a family for 10 years. I was here five years prior to that. My wife and I got married. She moved up here. Uh, and we started a church in Cambridge. Uh, and our, our, our two children were both born here. Now they think of themselves as Chicagoans, but for my wife and I, we still think of them as Bostonians. They were born right here at uh, Beth Israel. Both our kids were born at, in Beth Israel right here in Boston. So we, we tell them, you're not from Chicago, you're from Boston. Uh, and we're, I'm trying to drill into my son that he needs to be a Red Sox fan, but he's not having it. Uh, so the, the, uh, my daughter was born here in, uh, in, in Boston. At, at about the age of two... Um, uh, some, uh, some, some kind of unusual things started happening to her physically, uh, she would have these real high fevers. Uh, now, age two is uh, when uh, babies start teething. And uh, her fever would spike uh, as she was teething to like 104, 105 degrees. We're new parents. We're freaking out. I mean, she's, our precious two-year-old is, 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 is uh, it, this is horrible. Uh, so we would rush her to Children's Hospital. And, and most of you know, this is maybe the best children's hospital in the world. And uh, they do a whole series of tests and exams. They try to figure out what's wrong with her. And um, in fact, we were able to connect with uh, or have as our uh, main person overseeing her case, the head of the hematology department uh, at, uh, at Children's Hospital. So we're talking about one of the best hospitals in the world and one of the best doctors in that particular field. Uh, and he diagnosed her with something called neutropenia. Uh, and neutropenia is kind of a spectrum problem. But the main thing is that neutropenia means that there are three elements of your white blood cells. And one of the elements of your white blood cells isn't operating correctly. And so what happens is that the neutrophils, which are the things that fight the bacterial infections in your body, 
In her case, the number should have been about 1,200. Um, it's just kind of a, a random number I'm putting out there, but it should have been about 1,200 in order for a healthy person would have about a number of 1,200. Uh, when her fevers would spike and when uh, as she was teething and she was getting bacteria in her mouth, uh, her body wouldn't know how to handle it and her number would go down to 200. In a number of cases, it went down to zero. So she was operating at times with no neutrophils in her body and so she was unable to fight any bacterial infection. If you've ever had a two-year-old teething, you know that it's impossible for a two-year-old not to get some kind of bacterial infection. And so we were rushing her to the hospital every other week or so, she, her fever would spike to 105, we would rush her to children's hospital, they would pump her full of antibiotics, her fever would subside, we would take her home and then a week or so later, rush her back into children's hospital. And our medical doctor, uh, this head of the hematology department at, uh, at children's hospital, literally said, I'm, this is such a fascinating case. We have no idea what's going on here. And that didn't help. <laughs> you know, let us know what we can do. So, I don't know what to do. This is just such a fascinating... No, it's her daughter's life we're talking about. And there we were going in and out of the hospital. Her, her numbers would go from 1,200 at times normal. And then when her, the fever would spike, it would be down to 200, even below that. Uh, the doctors put her on... Uh, the traditional treatment for this kind of uh, uh, ailment, which was steroids, uh, prednisone, and it would stabilize a little bit, but then a couple of weeks later it would dip down again and she would uh, have, a, have one of those fever uh, uh, things. And I don't know how many of you have ever had sick children. That is the most helpless feeling as a, as a parent, uh, to see your child hooked up to IV and she's screaming because she's this little baby and they're sticking a needle in her to, to get her this fluid that she needs, to get her the medicine that she needs, but she's screaming at the top of her lungs. It is the most helpless feeling as a parent uh, to see your child to go through that. And that's what my wife and I were going through as we were uh, going, running back and forth from Children's Hospital. Now what was interesting was, right around this time, my dad suffered a stroke. Uh, and my dad suffered the stroke, and he, um, an amazing story was that uh, towards the end of his life, he really felt uh, that he needed, because he had nowhere to go. He was bankrupt, he had, you know, he had no money, so he actually wanted to come back to my mom. And my mom, I, I have no idea how she did this, uh, but she forgave him and actually took him back. Uh, and so right around the time that my daughter is going through this, my dad actually came back home and was living at home uh, with my mom and my, uh, my older sister. Uh, about a week or so after he moved back home, he had a stroke uh, and he was taken to the hospital. So, and this is all going on while my daughter is kind of going back and forth from the hospital. So this was, this was not the best of times for us as a, as a family. Uh, there we are, we're wondering if my daughter's going to make it. Uh, her fevers are spiking. She's, the neutrophil, neutropenia is not getting any better. And then now my dad has had the stroke. Uh, my mom has forgiven him. I certainly have not. I was not going to. I was like, why should I forgive a man who walked out and now he comes back? And in fact, it was, my ire was raised because he didn't have insurance. And so he was at the hospital without insurance. And because they were still legally married, uh, my mom would be stuck with his hospital bills at the end of his life. Uh, and I was just furious. And so, but I still went down there to try to talk to to comfort my mom and my sisters are still down there and went down there and they said well the prognosis is okay he might recover he's going to need a lot of help and uh, you know your mom's going to have to really work to take care of him to recover from the stroke and again I'm thinking he's been away from home for 20 plus years and now he comes home to have a stroke and now my mom at the age of 60 something is going to have to take care of him actually she was 70s at that point is going to have to take care of him so I was actually very angry. I said, this is crazy. This is not the way things are supposed to work out. My mom's supposed to retire soon, and this is supposed to be the best years of her life, enjoy the grandchildren. The last thing she needs is to be taking care of a husband that has abandoned her uh, 20 points. Again, the amazing... I, I, to this day, I have no idea how she extended forgiveness to her husband after all of that. Um, that, to me, is a testimony of the grace of God able to do anything in terms of reconciliation, the way that she forgave her husband after all those years. So my father suffered the stroke and now I've got kind of not just running to the hospital here, Children's Hospital, I'm flying home uh, down to Maryland as often as possible to kind of uh, be with them as well. Now, what's interesting is the condition that my daughter had called neutropenia is actually a, a very fascinating condition because one of the things that happens in neutropenia is that it is, it's actually an autoimmune disease. Uh, and it's not HIV or anything of that sort, but what it is is the body attacks itself. The reason her neutrophil count is low 
is that her other white blood cells don't recognize the white uh, neutrophils as okay. So the other white cells destroy the neutrophils. So it is this kind of autoimmune as in the body attacks itself. Now what was interesting around this time was that I was talking to a number of different pastors and one of the pastors told me, did you know that a significant percentage of autoimmune diseases really have to do with self-hatred? Explain that for me a little bit. There's no medical explanation for this necessarily. But those, many of those who have kind of autoimmune diseases tend to be those who have this emotional, spiritual self, self-hatred. And as a result of that, the body actually responds to the spiritual, emotional, mental self-hatred by attacking itself. I've never heard of such a thing. My daughters too. I don't think that's the case here. Um, but I, I found that away and, uh, and trying to think through, you know, what, what could that mean? Um, so after the initial prognosis of my, my dad's uh, illness, uh, he looked like he was going to get better. Uh, after about a month of being in the hospital, uh, I get a phone call saying, actually, it looks like he's not going to make it through the next week. Uh, he's had a number of setbacks. He had some subsequent seizures. Uh, he's not able to eat food and process food on his own. Uh, he's probably not going to last uh, more than a week. Uh, it was also right around that time, my daughter's illness was actually taking a, a turn for the worse, and her, her, her neutrophil count was down to zero, and the, the doctors at Children's Hospital said, uh, we're going to have to try something drastic. There's this experimental medication called GC, uh, I can't remember the name now, but it was, a, it was not approved, FDA approved yet, but it had shown some, it was a trial thing, so we want to try that on her. Uh, and said, oh, great, here we are, trying to take care of our daughter, and also my dad looks like he's not going to make it through the week. So I rushed home, down to Maryland, and, and then we delayed that treatment for another couple of weeks. I said, look, this is going on with my family, we can't give her this right now because we have this situation down there, so let's just go with the antibiotics for now. So I rushed home, and it turns out that he really was uh, kind of on his last few days. Um, uh, the, the, he had been moved to a hospice, uh, turned out he was going to have only about two or three days left to live. Um, I called back up here to Massachusetts, told my wife, uh, as soon as you can, come on down, because it looks like my dad's not going to make it through the, through the weekend. Um, so we go down there, I'm down there in, Mar- in Maryland, and um, uh, he's taken a turn for the worse, but I, it actually still hasn't quite hit me that he's going to die. Uh, so I'm there in the hospital bed, hospice bed, and my nieces and nephews are there, my, my, my sister's kids, and they're just kind of joking around. He's, he's awake and alert, but he can't move and he can't talk. Uh, but he's, you know, his eyes are alert and he's kind of looking around the room. Um, and I went down the hall to where my sisters and my mom were in the kind of the visiting area and they're planning his funeral. They're talking about, well, we should get this person to speak, uh, you know, this funeral home. And then that's when it hit me. Wait, my dad's going to die. He's not going to make it in the next day or so. He's going to die. Um, and as they're planning this, I, I just got this overwhelming sense of, I'm not going to let my dad die without there being genuine reconciliation between the two of us. So I went down the hall, kicked my nieces and my nephew out of the room, and I, and I went, and just the two of us, and I grabbed his hand. And I said, I forgive you. I forgive you for the pain you caused me. But I also said, I I ask for your forgiveness because I've been harboring bitterness for you all these years and that was not right. That was sin too. And I pleaded for his forgiveness and through, he really couldn't move anything but through his eyes and he nodded his head uh, and, he, and he blinked his eye. Uh, he accepted my, he extended forgiveness to me uh, and on that night there was genuine reconciliation between my dad and I. Um, my wife and daughter was able to make it down right before he passed away. Uh, and he was able to see his granddaughter before he died. Uh, he died early that morning, the next morning. Um, and, and I know that there was forgiveness, uh, reconciliation between him and I, but also reconciliation between God and him. Um, and I, I know that that forgiveness was something that I had to ask for as well because the bitterness that I had harbored was just as much of a sin as the things that he had done to me, abandoned and all of that. But the bitterness that I had been carrying was also a sin. Um, We had the funeral. Uh, We went back up to Boston. Uh, And then uh, as soon as we got back up to Boston, my daughter's fever spiked again. 
uh, we rushed into the hospital, the children's hospital. We went there. Uh, they said, all right, we got to do this. We got to do this uh, treatment. Um, so it was a Saturday night. I said, all right, we're going to do it. We're going to give her a shot Sunday morning. Uh, this is extraordinary treatment. Uh, I went back to my church and said, please pray for my daughter. Um, and we had a time of prayer for my daughter. Uh, they gave her the shot. After being at church for the afternoon, I went back in the evening and they said, well, we tested her blood right before we gave her the shot. Her account was zero. Neutrophil account was zero. We're going to check it now because that felt low. Um, don't expect anything because this medicine really doesn't kick in until a couple of days. So her count might come up in a couple of days. But we're just doing this test report. Um, they checked the blood uh, less than five hours after they gave her the treatment. They said, don't expect anything. Her count had shot up to 1,200. Um, since that day, uh, my daughter has not had a single incident of neutropenia. Uh, she has been healed by the power of God. Now I can look at this and say, yes, God had brought his creative power to bear. And he is. And he did. And he is able to do that. Can I get an amen? God is able to heal. God is able to bring all of his creation power to bear upon the life of a two-year-old child and to bring healing. She is, she is just the happiest nine-year-old. She is just a lovely, lovely uh, daughter. No health problems. That We've taken her back in a couple of times when she had high fevers. They, they said, no, her neutrophil count is normal. And in the last seven years, she has not had a single bout with neutropenia or, neutroph uh, or dropping neutrophil count. Now, there's two levels to this. The first level is that God has the power and authority to heal. But maybe the second level of it, and I wonder, I pray through this, and I, I don't have a clear, logical answer for this, that maybe God healed because I forgave. That the self-hatred that I had, or the hatred that I had directed towards my father, was that a part of the healing process for my daughter as well? Now again, I don't have a thought through historical, theological, even a medical explanation for any of this. But in my spirit somewhere, there's something that says the process of forgiveness was also a part of the process of healing. And we serve a God who is able to heal in amazing and powerful ways. That's why he says, be strong because I will bring all of creation's power on you. The final be strong that the passage gives to us is in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 and verse 9. Verse 9 says, The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 6 says, I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. Now think with me for a moment about how nonsensical this sentence actually is. The glory of this house will be greater than the glory of the former house. Remember the historical context. The nation of Israel had this beautiful temple under Solomon, the former house. Gold, silver, precious metal, precious stones. But all of that had been ransacked. And in fact, the temple had fallen down. And when the Israelites came back from exile and impoverished and poor people, uh, what could they do? They just threw the rubble together and said, Oh, what is this? It's a pile of rubble. And then God says, The glory of this pile of rubble will be greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. And you say, that makes no sense. Solomon's temple was the most magnificent building in all of the ancient Near East. People came from all over to see this house filled with gold, silver, precious metal, and precious stones. And yet you're telling us that the glory of this pile of rocks thrown together, nothing special about it, is going to be greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. Well, the passage goes on to tell us that the desired of all nations will come to this particular temple. Now, who is the desired of all nations? Jesus. Jesus. And the historical fact is that Jesus himself would actually walk in to that pile of rubble. And even if it's a pile of rubble, the second Jesus walks in to that pile of rubble, it is the most magnificent and beautiful building there is in the entire world. And I don't care how much gold Solomon had or silver or precious metals or precious stones, this pile of rubble had none of those things. But the second the presence of God, Jesus himself walked into that building, there was nothing greater than that pile of rocks. Friends, when we go through life, there will always be someone with a better looking temple. 
There will always be buildings that look nicer than yours. There will always be careers that are moving faster than yours. There will always be a fellow student with a slightly better GPA. There will always be another Christian college down the street that has a slightly higher ranking in U.S. Today and U.S. News and World Report. There will always be someone or something or some institution or some church or some neighbor or some family that has that house made of gold, silver, precious metal and precious stone. And you look at your life and say, this is a pile of rocks. You say, look at my family history. Rubble. Look at my failures as a Christian. Rubble. Look at the ways that I've disappointed God, disappointed family, disappointed all those around me. Rubble, rubble, rubble. And I just put this pile of rubble together and it is nothing. A pile of rocks not worthy of mention. But the second, the Spirit of God, the presence of Jesus walks into that pile of rock. There is nothing more beautiful, nothing more magnificent than your pile of rubble. Brothers and sisters, when you look around and see the pile of rubble, don't try to put gold and silver on top of it. Instead, Jesus, will you come into this pile of rubble and make it the most magnificent, beautiful thing imaginable? That's my prayer for you tonight. Lord, I thank you that you are at work at so many of our lives. Even when we fail, even when we don't live up to the to the calling that you have for us, you, Lord, are faithful. Even when we are not able to sufficiently be the great super-Christian that we think we ought to be, you still love us and care for us. Even when we fail over and over and over again, your faithfulness endures throughout all generations. So I thank you for the pile of rocks in this room. Nothing great to look at, nothing magnificent or special or unique about it in and of itself. But I thank you that your spirit resides in each and every one of us. And because of that, there is nothing, no vessel, no temple, no, no instrument greater than these individuals in this room because you have filled them to overflowing with your presence. Help us to go forth from this place filled with the knowledge of your grace, filled with the presence of your spirit, knowing that you go before us and you take a pile of rocks and turn it into the most magnificent thing. Thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.
Father, I pray this evening for all of us, that you help us receive this incredible love, this incredible grace, this incredible mercy, this overwhelming, extravagant love that you have for us. Will you help us to receive it more and be open to it? I know we'll never understand it. I know we'll never be able to grasp how high and how wide and how far your love is. I understand that, Lord, but will you just help all of us in this room and just receive it more and accept it and embrace it and live in it, we pray. Allow you to walk into the very center of our lives and allow you to be king of our hearts and our life. Make it a beautiful and glorious place, not for our honor, but simply for your glory. Be with those that have come forward to this altar to pray. I pray for those that are standing in the pews, that have similar prayers, that are reaching and calling out to you. Thank you that you hear our prayer. Thank you that you answer our prayer. Be glorified, we pray, in all that we do. As we go our separate ways, I pray your blessing upon every family represented, every student represented as we begin another week. I pray, Lord, for all of us that we walk out different from the way that we walked in. Be more and more into the image and light of Christ, we pray. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a place of prayer. If you need to leave, you are dismissed. Please leave reverently and quietly so those can continue to pray.
not boasting anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ. 